Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And today we are speaking with Jerry Bramwell, the founder of the law offices of Fitzgerald Bramwell. Jerry was selected to be the on the Lawyer of Color hot list in 2014, and he is a refugee of Big Law, capital B. Jerry, welcome. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice? It's it's mixed. It, it is. So I, I do maybe 60, 50 to 60% of my practice is employee side employment law, and the rest is I mean, a general commercial litigation, breach of contract, uh, business torts, you know, breach of fiduciary duty, some defamation work, but it's an entirely litigation practice, both in federal court, obviously, I think state courts in, in Cook County and the Collar Counties, and I do a fair amount of arbitration as well. Jerry, you are you mentioned arbitration, and I think you are our only colleague that I have ever met who likes or at times prefers arbitration. Can you tell us why that is? So sure. So you know, I, I've always grown up. If if you can swim, it doesn't matter how deep the water is. And you had a guest on maybe a few weeks ago who mentioned the importance of taking good cases and having good cases and having good facts to to to, to bring a case. And I think that that is you know always you need to start there. Anytime somebody calls up, anytime somebody comes in, you know, I'm always trying to make sure, look, you know, what happened to you? Can you explain what happened to you? Can you explain, particularly in the case where there's a a termination based on discrimination, but really any case, you know, why is this discrimination? Why is this retaliation? Why, Why are you entitled to some sort of relief? And, you know, when I get facts to suggest that there is something there, then I, I really don't care necessarily where I proceed. Do I have certain venues that I prefer? Yes. You know, if I can get into the commercial calendar in Cook County, I like that. If I can get into federal court, court I like that. But I don't mind arbitration. I don't mind proceeding in, in other court, court. Because again, if you have a good case, you should be able to present it in, in whatever forum. Our arbitration is, is interesting to me for a variety of reasons. Number one, most of the, the, the two biggest players, JAMS and AAA, the employer pays for it. That actually introduces a very interesting dynamic because if you know your arbitrator is charging between three fifty and eight hundred dollars an hour, depending on you know who, who the arbitrator is, well, you know it, it can get really, really. Um, it, it can create some incentives for the employer not to play games with respect to settlement or with respect to other things. I remember doing a case a few years ago, and please do jump in if I start rambling. We I, want you to ramble, Jerry. We like the war stories, and people hear enough of us. <laughs> All right. I remember doing a case a few years ago, right? It, it was a, I had the employee who was accused of breaching a non-solicit. Okay, fine. Let's go. Who did we solicit? Well, we, we have this laundry list of people. All right, here's a sworn statement from my guy saying he didn't solicit any of them. Call your first witness. All right, who, who's it going to be? We're going to bury you in the arbitration. All right, fine. You know, let, 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 let's take it to a hearing. Well, the arbitrator's bill came back, and you know, we estimated that the, the hearing was going to take at least a week, probably two. And the arbitrator's bill came back, and they were going to have to cut a check for X 
just to get hurt. You know, there, there's something about that that says, eh, all right, maybe we're not going to, maybe the bravado uh, goes away a little bit. The, the other interesting things about arbitration, at least for me, are, are, is this. You know, the judges in state court and federal court, my God, they do a great job, I think, generally. But how many cases are on their docket, right? You know, they, they've got, you know, hundreds of kids, at least 100 cases on their docket um, at any one given time and probably more, particularly in the busier courts. How many cases does the average arbitrator have? Maybe a dozen? Maybe. So, you know, if you're before an arbitrator, it's a lot easier to get, you know, right in front of them. Judge, arbitrator, I have an issue. I have a discovery issue. You know, we, we need to get this in front of you. I've gotten before arbitrators, you know, sometimes the next day. I never have had to wait more than a week unless it's due to opposing counsel schedule. Getting before a court can take weeks. And then you've got this long briefing process occasionally. And, and you know, this is not an indictment of the courts. It's just, my gosh, they're swamped. The last thing I, I like about arbitration is that you can get in and out fairly quickly. That's, again, not an indictment of, of anybody. That's just, if, if I did a case last year, we filed in November. We had, it wasn't a lot of work we needed to do. You know, we got, we got some documents. We did have some motion practice on discovery. The employer didn't want to turn over some documents. Arbitrator said, turn them over. We, we each did a deposition. And, um, you know, then it was, all right, call your first witness. And there is nothing. And, and this is one of those cases where the employer, we will never pay you. We will fight you in the, you know, channeling Winston Churchill. We will fight you in the beaches. We will fight you in the hallways. We will fight you in the alleys. We will fight you in the hedgerows. <clears throat> all right, fine. You know, I, here are the facts. I like my case. Let, let, let's go. And there's, but there was something about, all right, call your first witness. And it's coming really fast that clarifies the mind. And, and that, that, you know, gets people to, to take a good, long, hard look. And, and then it was, all right, maybe, maybe we can talk and maybe we can, can reach. And that doesn't always happen. But, you know, when, when you, it, it can accelerate the resolution, you know, just, just some things to think about. So I agree with a lot of that. I mean, another thing you essentially mentioned, but just to highlight a little bit, there's just less motion practice in arbitration. A lot of times when you're, going through state or federal court, you're going to have to deal with summary judgment motions, motions to dismiss. It becomes a long, drawn-out process. And with arbitration, you're basically going to go to trial, and it's going to be a much faster process to get to trial. And so that that is a huge advantage of arbitration. One question I had for you, just thinking through this, you also have an appellate background. And so one issue I don't like about arbitration is that it is harder to appeal an arbitration award. Now, if you win, I think you're in a pretty good spot. But if you get an outcome you don't like, then I think it's much harder to deal with. So what are your thoughts on that aspect of arbitration? I mean, look, not having an appellate option is unfortunate. And, you know, that, that, that's all I can say about that. It, it, it's unfortunate. You know, most of the arbitrations that I have done have been decided on the facts. And, you know, they haven't, there has not been the summary judgment. Uh, well, wait a second, you, you misapplied the law or you didn't give me a fair chance to be heard. They're heard on the facts. And, you know, it's, it's like being, it's like doing a bench trial. If the arbitrator says, look, these are the facts. These are the facts as I find them. I find that this wasn't a termination because it was retaliation. It was a termination due to performance. It was a termination due to performance is always the, the go-to. It was a termination because somebody had to go and it just happened to be this guy. He had the least the seniority. It was a termination for, for a legitimate reason. You know, 
if you get a decision on the merits, you're probably not going to have a successful appeal in any case. So yeah, would it be nice to have an appellate option? It would, but but I, I would trade off that appellate option for some of the advantages, particularly the speed. And I think that's that's a great way to put it too, because in a case in state or federal court, a good outcome likely will get appealed, even if the appeal isn't going to be successful, just to drag out the process. And so when you win an arbitration, you have finality to it. And that is also good for the client. It, it's good for the client. And, and you know, maybe it's appealed, maybe it's not. Look, I, I just did it. I just got a couple summary judgment wins in Cook County, right? Awesome. But these were 2019 cases. It's now 2022. Again, this is not an indictment of the courts at all. They're they're just swamped, and obviously we had COVID that that, that messed with with a few things. But I'm sure if those cases had proceeded in arbitration, they would have moved a lot faster. Do you feel like so? We've talked, I think, on different episodes of the show about mandatory arbitration and about some of the cons to it. I mean, this is Anila put on podcast, and I think that yours is a unique opinion, and that most plaintiffs lawyers don't enjoy arbitration some of the time. Although, you know, I mean, you get you get occasional ones where the facts are pretty clear. There's not a lot of witnesses. Speed is to your benefit. I guess just to play devil's advocate, do you ever find that the other side of it, that you don't have the threat of a Cook County or Northern District jury, or that there can be restrictions on discovery? You you have arbitrators who say, hey, it's arbitration. You're not getting quite as many depths, or you get fewer requests. Do you ever find yourself running into that frustration or that challenge? Maybe I have been lucky because I have always felt that I have gotten fair discovery. You know, have, have I always gotten everything on my wish list? No. But you know what? I don't get everything on my wish list. So it's a, a good point. Yeah. And maybe it forces you at times to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, selective or efficient, right? Like you're not going to get the broad sweeping everything. So you got to really think about what makes sense. Well, you know, I, I like to take cases and, and this goes from from inception, right? You know, how are we going to prove the case? If I truly need to go do a deep dive fishing expedition, uh, fishing expedition's got a, a pejorative to it. But but if if I truly feel the need to do you know broad ESI where I'm just running search terms for the sake of running search terms, uh, you know. Is this a case really that I should be pushing very, very hard? Obviously, there are times for ESI. For example, I've got one where we've got some, you know, really bad emails that, you know, we've seen. All right, let's search for some more emails like that. But you know, if if I need to make my, if, if I need these broad things to to actually make my affirmative case, you know, perhaps I might want to sit and think about that too. So stepping back from arbitration, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about your firm as well. So one of the things that you do in your employment law practice is you do what's called Farragher and Ellerith investigations. Can you mm-hmm. explain what those are and then what your role in those investigations can be? Yeah, this is not a very big part of my practice, but you know, as you know, many of the employment lawyers know, you know, it's an affirmative defense to a harassment situation. If, you know, particularly if you've got you know coworkers sort of on the same level, it's an affirmative defense to say, look, as soon as I knew about the harassment, I investigated, and I took prompt remedial action. 
Okay, that's that's the the the, the name Farragher and the name Ellerth come from two Supreme Court cases. I think it's Farragher versus Boca Raton and Ellerth. I don't remember what the the other piece of Ellerth was, but but the the basically the defense is look we we investigated we took prompt remedial action therefore, you know you can't come after us for creating a hostile work environment. You know oftentimes an employer will say look I've got my primary outside counsel you know, and we all know the big shops here. I got my primary outside counsel because this investigation may become presumed, you know, it may become discoverable. I'm going to give it to somebody else to do this way. I keep my privilege, or at least it's, it's a lot easier to, 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 to have my privilege and, and, and not have that privilege attacked. And so, yeah, you know, you, you, you meet with the complaining witness, you meet with the, the alleged harasser, you meet with the, you know, any witnesses, you review any relevant documents, then the investigation is supposed to be neutral. You know, you're, you don't have a dog in the fight. And, 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 and there it is. Do you think conducting those investigations allows you like better insight when you're representing employees? Yes, in the sense that, you know, eventually you're going to have to, when you represent somebody, you're going to have to present your case to a neutral person, either a judge, a jury, or an arbitrator. <clears throat> and so you're going to need to be able to, you know, pick up facts and explain why, why is this fact important? And um, here's why you need to pay attention to this fact. Here's why this fact demonstrates that there is, you know, discrimination, retaliation at play. Or here's why this fact, you know, this statement is a red hand if you're trying to poke holes in a defense. Let's use this opportunity to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. So Jerry, one of the other ways I think your practice, at least to me, is pretty unique is obviously you don't mind arbitration or at times you like it. You are also the only plaintiff's lawyer I know who and I say always with quotes around it, if this were a visual podcaster, quite mm-hmm. frequently files a motion for a summary judgment. Why do you think that is and what leads you to do that? Well, I, I, I don't know why I, other attorneys do what they do. Uh, that, I, don't that, to, <laughs> I don't try to that, judge anybody else's practice. That's fair. I should stop. It, it's my standard to call for speculation or some other objectionable question at least <laughs> once an episode. So there we go. Oh, but why, why didn't you jump in and, and, and save me there on that question? Uh, no, I just, I just. <laughs> sorry, sorry to derail it. But yeah, uh, as to your practice, what leads you to be, what, what leads that to be an active part of your, of your work? Right. So, you know, look, the law, the the rules of civil procedure apply both to plaintiffs and defendants, right? If, and again, this goes right back to picking a good case and picking cases with good facts to to bring forward and and to to help people with. And, you know, if you believe that the facts are what they are, if you believe, look, this person, I've got a case right now, it's, it's a Tenure denial case, right? Professor was was a gadfly on issues of race and and racism in her college and in her university. 
Okay. The the UBPT recommends that she receives tenure. This professor had previously accused the provost of of playing games, you know, racial games with another professor's career. And, you know, even though the UBPT, which is entitled to deference, recommends she receives tenure, the provost says, no, you don't get it. And then the very next year, the provost grants tenure to somebody who was recommended not to receive tenure at every level, but, but she grants tenure to this person anyway. And this this other person doesn't have any record of, of complaining about discrimination or, or, or anything like that in, in his college or in the university, right? Well, those are facts that suggest that there was retaliation at play, right? So, you know, give give them a chance to explain during deposition. If you can't explain the disparate treatment, you should move for summary judgment. Maybe you get it, maybe you don't. But you you do a few things. First, every opportunity that you have to talk to the court is an opportunity for advocacy. It's an opportunity to inoculate the court and help the court understand what this case is about what your point of view is. You know that the defendants are going to move for summary judgment. I mean, we, we all, when we do our, our, our Rule 26F conferences or, or when we meet and confer in, in state court prior to setting a scheduling order, we know, we build in a, a motion for summary judgment for the defense. Why, why, why are we not taking advantage of this rule of procedure as well? That's a really good point. And I think it's interesting because you take, I mean, oh, my dog's barking. So you take a harassment case, for example, because I think those are good examples of what we've been talking about. You know, the defense bar will always say there's no, you know, there's no evidence of harassment, the facts section, you know, you're supposed to have uncontroverted facts, but we all know that, you know, that's not what you're going to get. And you're going to have to spend your plaintiff's response rebutting a bunch of what they're alleging. In a harassment case where there can be a lot of he said, he said, you know, differences, especially where like the supervisor's a harasser and it's strict liability and you don't have to prove what they did necessarily. It does feel like the kind of thing more people ought to take advantage of when you have a couple people testifying, yeah, this happened and yeah, the guy did it and yeah, the guy could fire you, you know, and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, when you have the defendant's depth where he's saying, I didn't do it, I always wonder like, well, isn't the judge just going to say, well, your client says yes, they say no, kind of throw their hands up, you know. I don't know if you've ever had success in a harassment case like that. I, I do more wrongful, you know, termination as opposed to just harassment cases. Yeah. But, but, but you know, the, the you know, taking that point though, right? Anytime you move, you you file a motion. You know, the movement gets the first word and the last word. So, you know, now you, if you're defending that motion for summary judgment, I've given the employer the first word and the last word. He gets to speak twice. I get to speak once. Well, I, I want to speak twice. So, you know, this gives me, you know, really three opportunities to address the court, gives me a motion and a reply, and it gives me a response to the defendant's motion for summary judgment. I I, want to speak three times. And it's not just speaking three times, it's the number of pages too, right? Like if they're getting the first and last documents to file, they're filing presumably 30 pages to your 15. And so this way you have flipped the switch. I really like how you put it. It's just another aspect or a way to do advocacy. That's that's at least that's my thought anyway. I think it's a good way to put it. Anytime you can give you can work the refs and kind of start telling your story. You know, it's like I, I like a lot of football analogies and like you know you're not gonna get the call over basketball too. Like you know you're not gonna get the call over turn, but let's stick with basketball here. Michigan played at Purdue a couple of weeks ago and there were no fouls in the first half on the home team Purdue. You know, Juwan Howard yelling at the ref, he knows that they're not gonna overturn the foul call but you're just hoping in the second half as the game progresses right like they start making calls that go your way 
you start getting evidentiary rulings that go your way or at trial, they're going to know the story, they're going to know the score, and they're going to have heard your story enough times where they're going to start to understand and go, go in your direction if you don't win on the motion. Yeah, if you don't win on the motion and, and you know, or, or the court just starts thinking of the case, oh, this is the case where this happened. And, you know, we, we talked earlier, if you've got hundreds of cases on the docket, you know, if, if and uh, you've got to be able to leave the court with a good impression of you. <laughs> you don't want the court, court to say, this is the case where this happened. And, oh, my God, the plaintiff's lawyer is such a schmuck. You know, this is the case where this happened. OK, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this story. Are there, obviously you're not scouting other plaintiff's attorneys per se, but are there other places where you try to add in more advocacy as a strategic way to kind of frame the case for your client's perspective? You know, I, I think that, that in every time that you approach the court, that, that's an opportunity for advocacy. So there's often going to be a motion to compel or two or three, right? And so, you know, this is an opportunity to, again, you know, highlight what the, and this is obviously in court, not, not in arbitration, you know, highlight what the, the big issues are in the case, why this particular, you know, document or why these interrogatories are, are critical. And, and yes, and, and, and get those facts before the court so the court understands. You know, back when we were in doing hearings in person, you know, particularly in the, in the federal courts and you show up, you know, again, it's an opportunity to say, judge, if you remember, this is a case about X and here's where we are in this case. And here's where I think we're going in this case. But yeah, I think every time that you approach the, the neutral, I'll say, you know, the arbitrator or the judge is an opportunity to, to, you know, help frame the issues and frame them in a manner that puts your client's best foot forward. And motions to compel, I think, are a really good example of that, because not only are you going to have the motion, but you also have the correspondence with the attorneys. And I think a lot of times attorneys forget you're going to end up sending that to the neutral, to the judge or the arbitrator. And so it is important to write those things in the same lens of the audience isn't the other attorney. The audience is the decision maker, which is the judge. Amen. Right. You know, everything that you write, you know, could be an exhibit to emotion. I had a boss um, early in my career who said, before you do anything, think about how it would look in the cold, hard light of a disciplinary hearing or in front of a judge. And I always feel like that's good advice because it keeps you from doing anything to uh, that you wouldn't want a judge to find out about. Right. Like, yeah, when, when I'm talking to other attorneys, my biggest advice is assume everything you're putting in an email or in writing is going to the judge. Just write it that way. So a lot of times I'll draft stuff, step away from it, come back to it and say, you know, if this gets attached to a filing. How is this going to be perceived? Is this what I want? And I think that's a great way to kind of think through a lot of these things. Right. You, you always want to look like you're the reason. You always want to be the reasonable person, obviously, but it's not enough just to be the reasonable person. You also need to look as if you are the reasonable person, uh, particularly if you've got somebody who is, is busy and doesn't know the entire history. Exactly. And I think this goes back to the point you were making about arbitrations, too. All of this is a negotiation strategy. If you have good work product and you're constantly being you know, doing good work, reasonable work, and you're going to be able to get little strategic wins here and there, that's also going to advance the case from a resolution standpoint for your client. It's exactly right. You know, I, I have not met many clients who actually want to go to trial on either side, right? You know, this is on the, on the corporation side or the, the, the plaintiff side. You know, they, they, they want, I think on, on all sides, you know, a, a resolution that gives dignity 
And now sometimes you, you need to go to trial and, and, and that's just the way it is. But, but you're right. If, if you can, you know, help rack up some of these, these smaller wins, not, not like anyone has a small win, but if you can rack up some win, you know, if you can score some points on motion practice or whatnot, you know, you know maybe, maybe that helps the other side understand that this is actually a case that they need to pay some attention to. It's not just going to go away. I think it's like body blows. You know, you're like, you're not trying to win the whole case at once. You're trying to soften up the other side. Mm -hmm. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to survive the motion to dismiss here. I made it through on that point, And I presented to the court that your, your arguments are ridiculous. You get into discovery, you win motions on stuff they don't want to give you. You show you're going to find where the bodies are buried. You know where the smoking gun lies, all that stuff. You start picking away at it, right? You get into topics the other side doesn't want. And before you know it, like you've started to put the walls of the house up. You've kind of got the foundation there. And it's like, all right, guys, you're going to make me put the roof on and take you to trial. You're going to wait and see if I win summary judgment or you want to you want to make this go away now? It's, yeah, I, I, I like the boxing metaphor, right? It's not going to be, the, you know, very, very, actually, I can't think of any occasion where, you know, it's, it's a knockout punch right off the bat. It's it's a lots, lots of, uh, you know, you set it up and you set it up and you keep working at it. And eventually it's all right. Well, then, now I see your point. To jump back a little bit, Jerry, you were talking about a 10-year case. You, one aspect of your plaintiff side work is you have litigated against DePaul five times since 2018 what gives <laughs> i don't know that's amit's alma mater so, no it's it not is my alma mater it is, so yeah. I, so I, I don't know if i should take that personally <laughs> you know depaul is an excellent college and it, it provides an excellent education i, I, I don't want to knock the uh, educational <laughs> op offerings of the school at all i, I got called you know, a little while ago by a professor in depaul and, and i represented this professor and i guess my name got passed around and and so yes you know one of the interesting things though about you know litigating academic cases and obviously i have some public things that that you know, are out there. Then I have some more private things that are, you know, you, you would not be able to search for. But, you know, one of the very interesting things about litigating in academia is that academia provides one of the few exceptions to employment at well. So we're all familiar, you know, in, in the United States and every state but Montana, you know, you, you can be fired for any reason or no reason as long as it's not an illegal reason, a legal being, you know, because of your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, disability, pregnancy, retali you know, refusal to do something illegal, you know, complaints about violations of the civil rights laws, that there are few religion, there are a few others I'm, I'm sure that I'm missing. But, but otherwise, you, you can be fired for any reason, right? You know, I'm, I'm a Yankees fan and, and, and the Mets beat the Yankees yesterday and you're a Mets fan, I'm pissed, you know, don't don't darken my door again, right? You drive a nicer car than me, you're gone. I, I'm just having a bad day. You're gone. I need to let somebody go. You're gone. But the academic environment does not allow that, right? Particularly if you're, or rather, if you're tenured or tenure tracked, you can only be terminated at certain times or for certain reasons. So it, it provides, the, the representing professors provides a very, some very unique challenges. You know, one is proving that there was a decision, a termination decision made for an illegal reason, because there are so many protections built into the system, you know, ostensible, uh, ostensible protections. And, and the other is, of course, you know, the flip side, you have all these protections and, and, and they're not employees as well. So it's, it's a very, very interesting series of cases.
So just to, before we wrap up, we wanted to talk a little bit more about your practice. You do some business work as well. Can you talk a little bit about the business law or commercial law that you practice? Yeah. So I do some B2B litigation and look, you know, this is just the straightforward breach of contract. You know, we, we provided you some services and you didn't pay for them, you know, pay us, you know, there, there's some, you know, business divorce type cases where two partners, I use partner in the loose sense. So they, they could be unit holders or they could be shareholders, but two partners just can't get along and they need some help separating from each other. Defamation is a fascinating issue. I do some defamation work with businesses that get uh, negative reviews on social media or you know, people in the industry decide to disparage the business to other stakeholders. And, and it's it's interesting work. I you know, have always styled myself as just a pure litigator. And, and, you know, that, that's, that's what I do. I have a follow-up on the bad online reviews. Um, what are we talking about here? Like a, a restaurant gets a nasty Yelp from somebody who never went and says there was a fly in my soup or. Well, you know, that's always disheartening to hear what, what I'm, what I'm generally doing though, are such and such uh, company came in and they, I'm sorry, I sorry. was being glib. I was being silly. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 that, that's fine. That's fine. You know, there are the sorts of things I'm seeing is, you know, so, so, such and such came in and they did a really bad job and I, I was very unhappy. Okay, that's protected speech. Okay. And you know what? They falsified their hours on the bill and they committed fraud. Okay. And, you know, this is criminal. Okay, well, that starts to actually doesn't start to that does venture into to de- defamation per se. You know, you can't. Um, falsely accuse somebody of, of criminal conduct. You can't falsely accuse, impugn somebody's integrity. And so, you know, you, you, you start venturing into, into those areas or you get um, somebody in the industry. You know what? Company, company X, my God, you know, if you hire them, they are going to do X, Y, and Z. They're going to pad their bill. They're going to, you know, engage in, they're, they're going to do shoddy workmanship and they're going to hide it in a way that, they, you know, it'll be very difficult to, to, all right, again, that, that starts, actually it doesn't start getting into, it does get into, you know, accusing somebody of professional incompetence falsely, it, it, it impugns somebody's professional integrity. So those are the, excuse me, those are the sorts of cases that I, I've done on the defamation side. They're fascinating cases because like employment cases, you know, they're deep dives into the facts, you know, who said what, where are the documents, where can we, you know, use silences or the absence of documents to demonstrate that that something untoward happened. Well, and the internet, I think, has just made this stuff. I mean, I was joking, but the reality is like the internet makes everybody a tough guy and makes it really easy to do this stuff in a way that I don't think, you know, 20 years ago would have even been contemplated, right? Like now you can annihilate somebody's reputation with a, within seconds with a couple of keystrokes, right? So, I mean, it, it, I, I, I made jokes about it, but the reality is it's important work to protect businesses' reputations, particularly when people are cooking up allegations like that. Well, when they're cooking up allegations, I, I've always said, you know, if Facebook were around when we were in college, we, we would have had very different college experiences. I and sure, you know, social media is is something that we're still uh, still grappling with. No, for sure. I remember there was one summer I worked on um, Capitol Hill, and I was I was in housing with a bunch of other interns, and some of them were working in the White House. And they said on day one they showed uh, a presentation of everyone's Facebook photos, 
And that stuck with me because I was like, well, I'm not going to post anything on social media that <laughs> I don't want on a presentation. It's kind of like the judge email comment. One question I had is, you know, when you're working with companies, you are still dealing with humans. You're still dealing with people. But do you find that these business disputes are easier or harder to navigate than when you're working with an individual? They're different to navigate. Obviously, when you're talking with somebody's employment, that is very, very personal employment touches everything, right? You know, if you lose your job, oh my God, am I going to be able to keep a roof over my head? Oh my God, am I going to be able to, 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 to send my kids to college? The B2B disputes often don't get as personal as that, but you know, you're right. There's, you're still dealing with people and, and people are people. What do you think is kind of typically, and maybe there isn't an answer to this as typical, but what are you seeing often as the cause of a partnership dispute? You know, it could be uh, a variety of things. Oftentimes it's money. Sometimes it's just, you know, personalities no longer align or, or values change or visions change. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't have the tools of, of a therapist, right? I'm, I know as attorneys, sometimes we're, we're asked to be therapists. I'm not very good at that piece of it. You know, normally my goal is to say, all right, you guys just can't get along. If you need to blow this up, fine, let's blow it up. But then how do we blow it up in a way that, you know, benefits my, you know, it gives the greatest benefit to my client. And then this isn't necessarily gives the greatest benefit to my client and causes harm to the other side. You know, it's never the goal to cause harm, but how do we do this in a way that, that, that benefits my client? And I'm, I'm often looking, you know, actually always looking for the win. Because if you can get a win, obviously that's you know cheaper and and a, a better solution. Sometimes it's possible. Often it's possible. Sometimes it's not. Well, if it's not, it's not. But but yeah, you know if you can find a win-win, that's that's a way to go. Ahmed, um, are you ready for your favorite part? I am. So I think you've listened to a couple of our episodes, but we like to end them with a shout out of the week. So it's something positive just to end the episodes with. It can be a person, it can be a book, a TV show a pet, anything you want to shout out as a positive way to end the episode. So here's the positive that I have. It's now February and you can tell that it is getting lighter later, right? You know, it's, it's light after, after five o'clock. I think it's even light or, or close to light at 5.30. And we're going to be heading in very, very, very quickly, just given the, the, the rotation of the earth into just more and more sunshine. And the equinox is not far away. And then the days will be longer than the nights. It's not that far away. So, so that that is my positive for the, for the week. Fair enough. Jerry, if people want to find you, how would they? Oh, I'm sorry. I have one other question. Anything you want to plug? Any work you're doing right now? Any projects you have coming up that you want people to know about? Well, I'd like, can I plug two things? You sure, you can plug three. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, only have, well, I only have two that I want to plug. They both come out of the Chicago Bar Association. The first is the Judicial Evaluation Committee of the Chicago Bar. I'm a, a member of that, I'm actually a member of the Executive Committee of, the, of that committee. They do just such great work. As you know, judges in the state courts are elected judges. And I, I don't know about you, but I... I I use the system daily. I, I don't know the judges outside of the small area in which I practice, but the JEC, they do a great job of, of evaluating judges and, and, and you know, giving them either qualified, or highly qualified, or, or in some cases, not recommended recommendations. We've got elections coming up. So I'd like to plug them. I'd like to uh, plug the work that, 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 that 
they do. I'd like to encourage people to look at those evaluations. And for attorneys who are interested in getting involved in that, I'd like to encourage you to join. The other thing I'd like to plug is the Chicago Bar Association's Mediation Service. It's it's fairly new. It's a couple of years old. And the you know the mediators, are you've got a great slate of people there. And the price is actually very, very competitive as well. So I'd like to plug that. Uh, and I want to support your plug of the JEC for sure. I've worked as an investigator for the JEC for a bit. It's really awesome work. It's really important. The people in the rooms who are having the conversations are doing awesome jobs in terms of figuring out judges' backgrounds, looking at what attorneys are saying, colleagues are saying, all that type of stuff. And it's really important for um, society as a whole to have a better understanding of what we're voting for when we're voting for judges. So if you're an attorney, please get involved as an investigator. And if you're a non-attorney, please reach out to the CBA or other attorneys to see what those evaluations are looking like. Gary, if people want to find you to talk shop, ask for your help or anything else, how would they do that? I think the easiest way is to go to my website, uh, FitzgeraldBramwell.com. My uh, phone number is there. My email address is there. And you can see a little bit of a blurb about about sort of the sorts of things that I do. Awesome. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on to tell us your story, to tell us about your practice and the good work you do and the unique way you approach it. I think we all certainly learned a lot. And I think it's, it's nice for us to hear different perspectives on it. So thank you so much. Oh, th- thank you for having me. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.